Virginia Tech returns from its COVID pause and hopes to pick up where it left off. UVA suffers back-to-back road losses that have some doubting the Who's heading towards March. And the Atlantic 10 shuffles its late-season plans, maybe at the expense of Richmond. All that, and who's the leading candidate for ACC Player of the Year? This week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 42 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's ACC, Virginia Tech, and UVA sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you? I'm okay, Mike. I, I must confess, though, although as much as I try to bring the happy vibe whenever we do this, I'm a little down about today's news about Tiger. Yeah, and if you have not yet heard, Tiger Woods was in a, a fairly serious, apparently, uh, car wreck. They needed the jaws of life to, to get him out. He's got multiple leg injuries. And David, this is, I mean, no, no matter what Tiger's doing on the course, he is the story in golf. This is, you're right, a, a bummer. It, it really is. He is a once-in-a-lifetime talent. I've been blessed to write and witness, write about and witness some of the greatest athletes of our time, and he is right up there. I mean, he is riveting, and whenever he's on the leaderboard, he is must-see TV, at least in my household, and just some of the greatest sports moments of the last 25 years have come courtesy of him and just wish him nothing but the best. You know, he was trying to come back and and be ready for the Masters, but he had back issues and now this, you know, at, at this point, you just hope he can be a daddy to his two kids. Yeah, this certainly sounds serious. And, and, and you know, Tiger's story, I mean, his story, his background, his relationship with his dad, everything kind of to overcome to get where he got, that by itself was this great sports story. And then for him to become arguably um, or definitely one of the best golfers of all time, some put him uh, at the top of the list, but he's certainly up there. That became a story that that sort of carried itself and was such an amazing sports story. And then the comeback, mm-hmm. you know, I would argue the comeback of, of all of the amazing Tiger stories, his comeback might have been maybe the most improbable. And, and now this setback, and we, we don't want to speculate, but it certainly... It certainly sounds um, to the point that it can endanger any more golf going forward. And like you said, it's, you know, what, what will quality of life be, um, you know, for somebody who's dealt with back issues, leg issues, knee issues, and and now something so much more serious. Yeah, I mean, you just hope the best. And, you know, he, he had just gotten into playing some tournaments with his son. Mm-hmm. And, and that was such a cool thing to see. So, yeah, you, you just hope that he can get back on the course and and knock it around uh, just a, just a little bit to be with his kids. David, are you a golfer? Do you play any? I used to play a lot, but I soon found that I had neither the time nor the patience. <laughs> and then I just decided the heck with it. I'll, I'll tell you, because I, I love it. I, I am not a good player at all and have not played since before the pandemic. So that tells you how committed I am to becoming a better player. Uh, 
but I always enjoyed it at Virginia Tech. You know, they have that course that they've they've shortened now. It's a nine hole course. Uh, and in the days when you know Frank Beamer was coaching, and you were able to watch the first two or three periods of practice, and then you had about an hour and a half before you came back for interviews. Uh, I used to go take in the first period or two of practice and then shoot across campus, across the <laughs> duck pond, play the nine holes, and nice. then shoot back in, in time to uh, to do the interviews. So uh, it, it's a game that I, I hope to get back to, and uh, more importantly, that we hope Tiger can get back to. Now, on the front of, of the basketball, which is the, the season we're kind of focused on, David, let's, let's start out with the Virginia Cavaliers. And, you know, they had been atop the ACC standings really since starting league play. I, I mean, they, they had... They won their first seven games, and uh, they were the team to beat in the ACC. But last week, back-to-back road losses at Florida State, at Duke, it dropped them to second place in the standings, not the end of the world, but it raised a lot of questions about uh, this team, what it's built for, how it fares against better competition. Um, Really, it raised the question, how good are the Who's? I asked Tony Bennett about that on Monday. Hard to say, you know, I mean, we've played some good basketball, you know, even at the Duke game, I thought we played solid. I mean, that was a well-played game, both teams, and they made some plays down the stretch and it it could go either way. We've been in a lot of close games, you know, the Georgia Tech, NC States. All I know is all you can control is you get your team as best as possible. You know, it's, it's so disjointed with where you play, who you play, when you play them on the road, other teams playing more games, less games, not going so it's so hard to say for anybody, you know, we had to go on the road and I don't know how much that matters. Florida state, they took it to us, Duke and Virginia tech um, and, and others are close. Those are good teams. I, I think we're getting a feel for ourselves, but honestly, I don't know if anybody can say, you know, I got a great picture. This is who we are. We don't think we're too good, but we believe when we play right, we, we can be good. David, so Tony can't quite nail down just how good this team is. How about you? Do you have a good sense of what we have in this year's Virginia basketball team? Heck no. If he doesn't, <laughs> I sure don't. <laughs> but, you know, you, you mentioned back-to-back road losses. Florida State's the most talented team in the league. And UVA ran into a buzzsaw in Tallahassee on Monday night and lost by what 21 points mm-hmm. and sure you know that's a that's a bad look you know when you when you get run like that you know they got it to seven at one point in, in the second half but clearly the Seminoles were the better team and I think would be the better team if they were playing best of seven and then Saturday night at Cameron that was a desperate opponent that UVA ran into if Duke wants to reach the NCAA tournament for a 25th consecutive time, it virtually had to win that game. And win it, the Blue Devils did, albeit by one point. David, correct me if I'm wrong. Tell me if you agree with this. If the schedule had not had those games back-to-back, we wouldn't be making as big a deal. Now, the Florida State, because of the margin, yes. The one-point loss at Duke, as Duke seems to be putting it together— it's just the fact that they came consecutively that really has us panicking, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't – maybe has fans panicking, and that's that's fine. <laughs> that's that's what they are wired to do. But, yeah, back-to-back back is part of it. And also just some of the defensive issues that have come up in, in those two games, again, against quality opponents with good players on the offensive end. But yeah, you, you just wonder, is, 
you know, how far can this team go? Yeah, I mean, the the concern, I think, is you have the San Francisco loss. That's a bad loss, but it was early in the year. Things were kind of mm-hmm. disjointed. Uh, but their best opponents that they've faced, they've lost to, right? Gonzaga, yep. not competitive. Florida State, not competitive. Uh, we'll see where, where Duke lends up. Uh, Virginia Tech, that was a, a pretty lopsided win for the Hokies, although Virginia started that game well. Uh, what's the best win on this UVA resume? Is it is it Carolina? Is it Clemson? Is it the two wins over Georgia Tech? What, what win impresses you the most? I would probably say Clemson. Uh, although being Georgia Tech twice by season's end may may look quite impressive, and Carolina could end up as the third or fourth place team in the league come mid March, but right now I would I would say Clemson, if only because it was so emphatic. Yes, the Carolina win was as well, but the Clemson margin was what thirty five. Something along those lines, and it was a complete dismantling. So that's where I'd uh, lean. Now, as we look at the rest of the way, and and I think, I think it's a little bit of of you know sports talk radio because Virginia is going to finish in the top two or three certainly of the ACC. It's going to be in the NCAA tournament. It's got a good shot to be maybe a three seed uh, in the tournament, maybe higher if it puts together a run in Greensboro. Uh, so I don't know that there's any concern here, David, or, or is there? Or, or is there work left to do for UVA, or, or is this team kind of sitting pretty until we see what it can do in the tournament? No, I think there is work to do, and Tony Bennett would tell you that, especially on the defensive end. In the two losses last week, Mike, to Florida State and Duke, Virginia allowed a combined 27 transition points. Mm. That's virtually unheard of against the Cavaliers because they are so good at getting back and getting that defense set. And they were not in those two games. And that is absolutely a concern. And then on the offensive side, what Tony Bennett explained to us on the ACC Zoom yesterday and that fans can can see as well, is that defenses are really locking down on Sam Hauser and Jay Huff as well they should. And especially in Duke's case, Trey Murphy. Mm-hmm. The fact that Trey Murphy did not attempt a shot in the final 33 minutes at Cameron after having had two shots in the first couple of minutes to me was one of the most interesting aspects of that game. And I credit Wendell Moore. He played outstanding defense. And what teams are doing is they are telling Kihei Clark, let's see if you can beat us, if you can finish, if you can shoot over length. And he took 15 shots the other night against Duke. That's not a good number for UVA. You know, it's interesting because I know fans bang on Kihei. He's a great player. He wishes he was taller, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, if he was a bigger guy, yeah, he could finish more. But to me, Kihei Clark is at his most effective when he's getting to the rim and finishing in a couple big spots, not that being the offense. Now, with that being said, when opposing teams make that their defensive game plan, David, is there a solution here? Is, Is there an answer or does it just come down to Kihei Clark's got to find a way to finish over bigger guys or they're never going to force teams out of that defense? Well, it's a combination. They're going to have to do more. As as Bennett was, was saying yesterday, he needs to figure out some ways to move Huff, Hauser, and Murphy around more to, to get them free from what 
opponents are doing. He's going to need somebody like a Casey Morsell mm-hmm. to, to do some things off the dribble when he comes off the bench. They were without Thomas Woldetensai against Duke because of contact tracing and will be again. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon and will be again tomorrow night against North Carolina State. So that's another element or component of the offense that Virginia will have moving forward that should help. Yeah, I think the guy you mentioned there, Casey Morsell, is the most intriguing to me. Um, he, he doesn't look like he's made the advancement that maybe people were hoping this year, but he's got moments, David, mm-hmm. where he pulls up and hits a oh, shot, yeah. a mid-range shot, which is so hard to defend. To me, that's exactly what's missing. Uh, if he can do that, if Trey Murphy can do that a little, that's going to force people to help off Hoffenhauser because it's not, okay, Kihei's in the lane, let's see what he can do. But now there are these guys who can dribble, penetrate, and pull up and hit the mid-range shot. To me, that's the key for, for them to loosen up defenses is they've got to show that ability from those guys. Reese Beekman, I don't know how much uh, of his game that is, but um, those three guys putting the ball on the deck, starting to penetrate, but being able to pull up, hit that mid-range shot, I think that's really going to soften defenses, cause them to collapse back, and then you get Huffenhauser going, and, and then we start to see what we thought we saw with this offense to start, which was inside, outside, driving a lot of different weapons and versatility. Teams have kind of figured it out for now, and and it's up to Tony Bennett to now answer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Beekman's more of a slasher and probably isn't going to be that guy who has that, you know, kind of mid-range game. But Murphy and, and Morcell, I think, fit that bill. That would be huge. Now, that would be a thing that can get Huffenhauser going. Speaking of Huffenhauser, let's talk a little bit about the race for ACC Player of the Year. You know, I asked Tony Bennett, I said, hey, Jay Huff and Sam Hauser are both having ACC first team kind of caliber years. Uh, will will they kind of split the vote in, in terms of people who think it's it's one of them? And he laughed and he said, maybe we can give them co-player right. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, the preseason pick in the league was Garrison Brooks of North Carolina. I think he's had somewhat of a disappointing season, Uh, maybe a a bit pedestrian. He's been good on the glass for them, but maybe not the inside scoring threat that that people thought he would be. The front runner has to be Pitt's Justin Champagny because he's leading the conference in scoring. He's leading the conference in rebounding. He's averaging, David, a double-double, 18.8 points, 11.4 rebounds per game. Is he the guy to beat? Yeah, I think so. You know, not not many guys are going to lead the league in scoring and rebounding and not win ACC Player of the Year. It's happened a couple times way back when, but certainly not recently. And he, but he has faded some late, mm-hmm. and he may not end up leading the ACC in scoring. I think he, his edge in rebounding is such that he can coast to the finish line there. But Matthew Hurd of Duke, I think, is probably decent money to pass Justin Champagny in the ACC scoring race. Yeah, and with Duke surging, that mm-hmm. makes him an interesting candidate for Player of the Year because people are going to say, okay, how did your team do? Now, I think Pitt's been maybe better in, in some ways than expected, uh, not consistent, but but so much of this season. <laughs> I just don't know how right. much of a knock we can we can use inconsistency because everybody's had it. Uh, but I think with Duke surge, that could certainly bring Hurt back to the front of that race. Yes, and, and Hurt leads the league – 
and it, and it all comes down to how many field goals you've attempted and, and the statistical things get kind of nuanced, but his shooting percentages are really good. And Virginia found out the other night just how good he, he can be. They just really had no answer for him. And he continued to play well last night, as did Duke, in throttling Syracuse on, on a short turnaround. So I, I think Hurt is – he is surging at the right time. That makes sense. Now, there are some other candidates out there, and um, maybe they're more first-team all-conference guys, but – Carlick Jones, the Radford transfer, with his scoring, I, the role he's played at Louisville, uh, he and Jose Alvarado at Georgia Tech are the only players in the league who are in the top 10 in scoring and assists. Uh, I think they're guys to watch. Those teams have been uh, very good, depending if you put much stock in that. And then speaking of Champagny leading the league in, in points and rebounds, there's only three players in the league that are in the top 10 of both those categories. It's Champagny, it's Georgia Tech's Moses Wright, and it's Virginia Tech's Keve Aluma, who... Uh, about a week or two ago, started to get some traction in the player of the year race. Uh, David, how do you see his case and and what he's meant to the Hokies? Well, there's no question what he's meant to the Hokies. The only problem for Kebe Aluma right now is out of sight, out of mind. And it's, it's, it's recency bias. That's what we're, that's how we humans are, are wired and we just haven't seen him in so long. And much the same with Carly Jones until the other night at North Carolina when Louisville came, came off its pause. And when, when those guys go away for two-plus weeks, you just kind of lose sight of them. And, oh, yeah, that's right. I, I forget, you don't forget about them, but they're just not on your radar every night. Yeah, I mean, Keve Aluma, before the break, <laughs> was averaging 15.7 points per game. That's first on the team. 7.6 rebounds, that's first on the team. Uh, he leads the team with 25 blocks and has been really good on the defensive end. He's a good passer. He's got 36 Very assists Very good passer in, in those 18 games. That's third on the league coming from a big guy uh, who often is getting the ball with them wanting him to, to score or shoot. So he's been a, a great all-around player, uh, perhaps with a surge here at the end. Can he get himself back uh, up to the top of that race? I don't know about the top of the race. I, I think he would have a pretty remote chance at player of the year in the league. First team all ACC, I certainly think is doable. But I mean, to me, you're looking at one of the Virginia players, Champagny, Hurt, or, and I'm really, really big on Jose Alvarado. And we'll see him tonight when Georgia Tech plays at Virginia Tech. But you mentioned how he and Carly Jones are the only two who are among the top 10 in scoring and assists. Well, Carly Jones barely shoots 40% and he shoots less than 30% beyond the arc. Jose Alvarado is shooting over 50% from the floor, over 40% beyond the arc, over 80% at the free throw line. And oh, by the way, I think he's the best defensive player in the league. Yeah, you've been high on Georgia Tech since the start. You've been high on Alvarado since the start. The inside-out combination they have with with Alvarado and Wright, uh, man, they've been in a lot of close games and mm-hmm. some close ones with with UVA that, that we've seen. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see, and, and obviously we don't know what we'll get into Tech here in a second with them coming off the break, Virginia Tech that is, but it'll be interesting to see that matchup. But uh, I think Georgia Tech is – those are some – 
games that, you know, think about Virginia's resume. I think when the year is over, we're yeah. going to think, okay, those Georgia Tech wins were pretty good. That Duke loss, not so bad because, you know, for some of the players and reasons we're talking about, I think those teams are surging. Now, we both kind of agree, and it's played out that Florida State, top to bottom, is probably the, the best team in the conference. David, we didn't mention a single player from Florida State as we uh, recapped the, you know, the odds and then and the favorites for player of the year. What does that say about what Leonard Hamilton's built there, its program, the balance of that team? It's a sequel to last season, right? Sure is. The Seminoles won the regular season in 2020 and nary a first-team All-ACC pick. Devin Vassell made second team. I believe he was the seventh leading vote-getter overall, and I think it could be very similar this season, although I'm certainly going to consider MJ Walker. I I think he's their most complete player and arguably their most important one, just in terms of leadership and just all-around play. Scotty Barnes clearly has the most you know, pro potential and in all likelihood is is a one and done guy and is headed for the NBA lottery. But I if if a Florida State guy is going to crack first team and maybe that player of the year conversation, it would be MJ Walker. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I do think Florida State is constructed in, in a similar way as last year, but the talent is up. I mean, that is it's like what Leonard Hamilton's been doing, but with better players. I mean, you, you mentioned Barnes. I think Walker's development, uh, Raekwon uh, Gray, Gary. Um, I, I think that the Gray. job, Gray, yeah. the job he's done. And these are guys that have gotten better and better and better. Uh, I think this is the most talented team Leonard Hamilton has had in a while. And it's still deep and athletic and all the things that they build for. And, and you know, it's why we thought this last year and, and things got cut short. I think we think this this year, it, it's kind of built for tournament success when it has that kind of depth. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm sure that few programs were as disappointed at the cancellation of last season's mm-hmm. NCAA tournament as, as Florida State. You know, it, that was that was a team that absolutely could have made some noise. And, and Mike, I, I, I know you're, you're high on this group. Let's not forget, there were two Seminoles in the top 11 of the NBA draft yeah. last year in, in Vassell and Patrick Williams. So yeah. he, he, he had some dudes last year. Too. He's, he's really elevated, <laughs> elevated that program on that front in a way that, you know, it's interesting because like I said, he, he's, he built it on depth, right? He built it mm-hmm. on depth, athleticism, um, almost those hockey style line changes where right. guys, guys are just coming in and it's a, a fresh wave of skaters. And, uh, you know, the other guys are clutching their, their shorts and here come five more, um, and now it just seems like the last couple of years that that wave, that second wave and sometimes third wave that comes off that Florida State bench, I mean, they are all guys who can really play. And um, it's an intriguing team, and I, and I hope they get their chance uh, this year to show us what they might be able to do in the in the postseason. Now, Kevin Aluma, who we talked about, he's a big reason that, that the Hokies are, are still in the race with Florida State, with UVA. They're third in the conference. But as you alluded to, they haven't played in over two weeks. Yeah. They've been on 
a COVID-19 pause basically since there, that February 6th overtime road win at Miami. Uh, two games against Florida State and a game against Carolina wiped out. Hate um, that. Hate that. Wanted to, to see those games, Right. Man. The opponents, we were most really intrigued to see them play, although they still have the UVA rematch. So if you had asked me for the, the five games I want to see Tech play this year, I think three or four of them at this point uh, yes. have been wiped off the schedule, which is frustrating. They get back on the floor, as you mentioned, tomorrow night. We're recording this Tuesday. Uh, tonight, we're recording this Tuesday, tonight against Georgia Tech. Uh, a number of the other ACC coaches who dealt with the pauses talked about how hard it is not just getting your players back onto the floor and back being allowed to play, but getting them back into game shape to run the floor. And I asked Virginia Tech coach Mike Young about that on Monday. You know, I can see it. Um, we don't scrimmage a lot. Um, you know, we're, we're, uh, working on stuff and um, uh, certainly this time of year we don't get up and down the floor um, we don't uh, we don't uh, there's not a lot of contact in, uh, in practice but um, had to uh, rethink that and we have um, you know we scrimmaged uh, we probably scrimmaged uh, three four minute games so it's a legitimate game tie score uh, just to um, just to get them up and down uh, concerned about it tomorrow I am. Um, but they are big, strong, healthy people. And, um, yeah, you just, we, we got to get back on the floor. Mike is the bottom line. We got to get back on the floor, David, they get back on the floor. What are we expecting to see against, as was mentioned, a really good Georgia tech team? You just don't know, but I, I think my Virginia tech has a little bit of an advantage here. All these pauses are not the same. Some of these teams, such as Clemson, such as Richmond, such as uh, Louisville, they've been on complete shutdown. Nobody practicing, nobody's in one in, in solo workouts, and that really, really hamstrings you. Virginia Tech's been able to practice. Now, we don't know who's been practicing, but they've had four, five, six guys able to practice at the same time. And unless anything has changed, what Mike Young had previously told us was it's not like the virus has ravaged the roster. This was someone else in the tier one group and all the players or some of the players were affected by contact tracing. So that's a difference too. You know, the, the players haven't been sick. And whereas, you know, Chris Mack at Louisville had the virus, several of his players had the virus. And then, you know, look what happened to the Cardinals at, at Carolina the other night. They lose by what, 45? Oof, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, that was tough to look at. You just felt badly for them because when the Tar Heels get it in gear and transition, <laughs> they're going to make anybody look that way. So I, I think Virginia Tech – at least from everything we know, we don't know all the details, but from what we've been told about this particular pause, I don't think the effects will be as dramatic as we've seen with other programs. Yeah, it's an interesting standard we apply now because in a normal year, if I told you that uh, Virginia Tech only had five or six guys in practice to get ready for an ACC game and just got up to nine uh, here, what, in the past few days, and, you know, they'll have a roster to compete tonight, uh, but who knows how many of those guys have been in and out. Of, you would think that's a disaster in this <laughs> COVID year. That that actually doesn't right. sound that bad. They, they may be a little bit ahead of the curve. 
you, you mentioned that, you know, that Louisville Carolina game, it's kind of the worst case scenario, right? Of, of what can happen to a team uh, because Louisville had its full roster for that game, but mm-hmm. those guys just, they were a little bit out of shape. They were a step slow. They had no rhythm. Uh, it will be very interesting to see what this team can do. You know, Mike Young mentioned and Steve Forbes, who's a good friend of his at Wake Forest, mentioned chatting with him about it. The coaches who are dealing with it now have the advantage of hearing from the guys who dealt with it earlier. Um, so I think Mike Young had a good idea, a good handle on what to expect, particularly in that conditioning area. We heard Brad Brownell from Clemson talk about that a lot, um, telling me on Monday that, you know, something he didn't anticipate, guys hadn't been in defensive crouches uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> during the break. So he has them doing defensive slide drills. They get in the crouch, and the next thing you know, he's got three or four guys dealing with a stiff back. Uh, things like that to, to be aware of. I think Mike Young has the advantage now of, of hearing everybody else's horror stories. He's a smart guy, but you know, we'll see. It, it'll be definitely interesting to see uh, in this matchup tonight. Yeah, re- it really will. And we don't know what's the status of, of, of Jalen Cohn, who hurt his ankle down at Miami. Joe Bamisil came, came off the bench and relieved him admirably. Uh, you know, it, 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 the last we knew, Mike Young was telling us yesterday that Cone was using a splint on the ankle just out of precaution, and he was kind of coy about whether he would play tonight. You know, we'll we'll see. It certainly would be a boost for the Hokies to have that sixth man coming off the bench like that. And it would be nice just to get him back in the flow as you head towards the ACC tournament. Uh, speaking of conference tournaments, oh the A-10. They've jumbled their schedule. They are cutting the regular season short. They've moved the conference tournament up, um, and they've moved some of the sites for for where the semifinals and finals are going to be played. Didn't sit great with Chris Mooney, the coach at Richmond, or John Hart, his athletic director. Uh, For one, and the move cancels Richmond's big rematch with rival VCU, a, a game that I think we were both really looking forward to. It also moved the tournament semis and championship away from the Robbins Center, uh, moved those dates to the Siegel Center, VCU's gym, and then also Dayton. David, why did they make this move, and, and does it make sense? I don't know, and I'm not sure. <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's really peculiar, Mike. Keep in mind, the A-10 announced on January 28th that it was moving the tournament from New York to Richmond. Dual sites, Robbins Center, Siegel Center. Okay, great. And at that point, we already knew what the NCAA tournament testing protocols were going to be, that you had to have seven consecutive negative tests, but the tournament was still going to be at its regular dates going March 11 through 14 and ending on Selection Sunday with the championship game. And that was going to be at, at Robbins Center. And or or Siegel said, I forget which one. And then last Thursday night, three weeks later, in a after hours news dump, it's like, mm, remember what we said three weeks ago? Never, <laughs> never mind. We're going to play the championship game in Dayton. And oh, by the way, that's going to be the same date on Selection Sunday. But we're moving the rest of the tournament up a week, keeping it in Richmond and scrubbing the last week of the regular season. Well, if this was such a good idea now, why wasn't this done on January 28th? What changed? And no one's been able to explain that to me. And if if I'm VCU, if I'm Ed McLaughlin and I'm Mike Rhodes, I am smoking 
hot about this because that game at Richmond in the regular season finale, that's a quad one game for the Rams because of its location. It was a quad two game played at the Siegel Center last week. It was a quad one game played at the Robbins Center. And now that opportunity is lost. And VCU doesn't have a quad one win yet. That, and, and I asked Mike Rhodes about it yesterday, and his two-word answer was, it stinks. Yeah, and, and John O'Connor, our, our colleague at the Times-Dispatch, he asked Chris Mooney, and Chris pointed out exactly what you're saying. It For a, a league that wants to get as many at-large chances as it can have, he says it's going to hurt the league's chances. That's a great example. David, is he right? That overall, this hurts teams in the league that, that are trying to earn that at-large resume? I think it does. Yeah. Now, the A-10's rationale, John talked to Bernadette McGlade, the A-10 commissioner, and her explanation was, in part, and I'm paraphrasing, that by moving the early rounds of the tournament back a week, that gave teams more of a runway to, to meet NCAA testing protocol. Okay, but then I go back to my other point. The NCAA testing protocol is not new. And oh, by the way, Bernie is on the committee. She's on the basketball committee. We're not plowing new ground here. Why did it all of a sudden become a good idea? Now, moving the title game to Dayton, I get that part of it. Because Dayton's only a couple-hour bus ride from Indianapolis. Those teams, the, the winner of that that gets the A-10 AQ to the tournament, and hopefully for the A-10, the loser of that game is also getting it at large. They're not going anywhere. They're going to go straight from Dayton to Indianapolis. That's a convenience thing. So I get that. But again, you knew that three right. weeks ago. Why now? And and no one's explained that. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to, to make a lot of sense other than sitting down and saying, ooh, our plan isn't that good. Here's a better plan, which, hey, I mean, I guess in this crazy COVID year, if you want the option to rethink things and come up with a better plan, I guess it should be supported. It stings for us here in the Richmond area because that VCU Richmond rematch, mm -hmm. something we were really looking forward to, David. Um, you saw them play the first time, seeing them play again. Uh, how much were you looking forward to that one? Well, I wanted to see him at full strength. Yeah. I mean, because the, the, the first game was Richmond coming off another ex extended pause. And it, it was a fun game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Spiders just faded late. They, they, they had no legs. And VCU scored the game's final seven points. I think Richmond missed like 14 of its final 15 shots. Yeah. I mean, and, and everything was front rim. And, and, and VCU just had more gas. And hello, of course VCU had more gas. That, that wasn't surprising. But I really wanted to see them you know, in a fair fight. Maybe we get that fair fight in the conference tournament. Absolutely. Be a great matchup, be a lot of fun, and be a lot of fun for the city of Richmond. And that also brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. It is Take It or Leave It. Both the Rams... And the Spiders will reach the NCAA tournament this year. Take it or leave it. And let's start with David. Guys, I'm going to leave it just because I, I was looking at their profiles before we started this. And, and it's going to be dicey. I, I think both could make it. But, you know, VCU sitting there at 35th on the net, which, by the way, is one spot ahead of Virginia Tech. 
and and the Hokies are are clearly in the tournament. But as we mentioned earlier, VCU does not have a quad one win. For a while, the Utah State win was, but Utah State has since fallen out of the top 50. That's now quad two. The Rams are 7-0 and against quad two. That's excellent, but 0-3 against quad one. They've got a couple unsightly losses, including this past Saturday at home to George Mason. You know, the big issue with VC, what what's going to happen with Bones Highland? Again, we're recording this. It's 4.36, kids. On, on Tuesday afternoon, the Rams in St. Louis tip it off at the Siegel Center in less than 90 minutes. And an immense game for both teams. For St. Louis, that's a Q1 chance. For VCU, it's Q2. Bones Highland will not play. We do not know his status for Saturday's regular season finale at Davidson. You know, he he, he hurt that um, hurt that uh, foot the other day, and you know, all the tests came back negative. But you know, when can he play? We don't know. VCU conversely is, or excuse me, Richmond conversely is 58 on the net, but has two. Q1 wins over one over Loyola of Chicago and, and one over Kentucky, but as a Q4 loss at home to LaSalle, it plays St. Louis on the road Friday. That is another extra large game. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, you know, I, I think for both of these teams, it's going to come down to what we were just talking about, the, the conference tournament. Um, I think both will make it. I do think they'll both get it done. In most of the projections you look at, Richmond appears somewhere in the last four in, first four out, somewhere in that range. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the Spiders will get it done. I think VCU will get it done. But you mentioned huge games this week, uh, missed opportunities with this change in the schedule. I think it's going to come down to, I was about to say Brooklyn, but that's not the case this year. I think it's going to come down to what they can do in the A-10 tournament. And I think, David, you hit on a good point that, you know, with Bones Highland and, and with some of these pauses, and I'd like to see them both get into the A-10 tournament in pretty close to full strength, right? And, yeah. and give us their best shot. I think the best shot of VCU and Richmond, if we get it in the AT tournament, A-10 tournament, I think that carries them to the NCAAs. And boy, that would be a lot of fun, right? To have all of these teams, Virginia, Virginia Tech, uh, Richmond, VCU, probably Liberty uh, there, uh, maybe Liberty there in, in, in Indianapolis, potentially a, a really good year for basketball in the Commonwealth. Don't forget James Madison. James Madison having kind of the surprise season yeah. uh, of the year in the CAA. Good point. Yeah. So it's just a, a fun year in, in basketball, despite <laughs> all of the parts of this year that aren't fun. The Commonwealth has given us a, a lot to pay attention to. David, before we go, a couple of ACC coaches gave us some things to pay attention to, if you will, in the past week. Let's start with Josh Pastner, oh uh, who blew up my Twitter feed by saying uh, that he thinks 11 teams from the ACC should make the NCAA tournament every year. Now, I'm assuming that's a bit of hyperbole, and his point is just how much talent and great coaching is in the league. But David, what did you make of Josh Pastner saying 11 of the 15 teams in the ACC should be in the big dance every year? Josh needs decaf. <laughs> he, he he truly does. I like Josh a lot, but he he goes over the top on many subjects, and he is way over the top 
on this one. Yeah, you know, Josh is uh, kind of trademark on on the teleconference, which he's great on. Uh, he's he's really engaging, entertaining. Uh, he even came on once when they were playing a game. Came on on game day, which most coaches a uh, pass on that option. Uh, so he's great to us, but he loves to tell us which coaches belong in the Hall of Fame, which are going to the Hall of Fame, who should have a statue, who should have a court named after them. Uh, he's effusive in his praise of his uh, coaching counterparts, and I'm sure they appreciate that. But yeah. Uh, maybe a bit much. And certainly I think uh, if you look at the standings this year, 11th place would be Notre Dame. And, and I think even Mike Bray would tell you that he probably doesn't have an NCAA tournament caliber team this year. So a no, little over no. the top. Mike, it, you know, you, you mentioned Josh coming on the, the uh, ACC Zoom on, on game day a couple of weeks ago, which is unprecedented. He also one day came on while he was driving <laughs> which probably wasn't a great idea, but that's only the second best Georgia Tech coach appearance on what back then was just the ACC teleconference because one year there was this odd background noise and Bobby Crimmins was on the call and Brian Morrison was the moderator. And he's, coach, where are you? Uh, Brian, I'm in the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, and uh, uh, Bobby Crimmins, bless his heart, one of the great all-time coaches and characters in this conference. And, and having actually interviewed Bobby Crimmins one time in the sauna at Alexander Memorial Coliseum, I can just picture him calling in to the ACC media interviews from a hot tub. So Josh Pastner, if you're listening, that's your next challenge is get into the ACC call in your hot tub or your pool. You know, I often do that call from my treadmill, but all I have to do is dial down the speed a little bit when I ask my question and then nobody nobody realizes that I'm uh, doing my poor excuse for a workout for the day <laughs> while I'm on the call. Now, on a much I don't know, less positive note, Chris Mack from Louisville, uh, a video circulated of him celebrating uh, at a party at his house, maskless with some people, uh, including former uh, Louisville football player, Eric Wood, I believe was there. Uh, David, what did you make of that? And what did you make of, of Chris's kind of apology that for it this week? Chris, Chris is an interesting guy. And it, whenever he gets out over his skis, <laughs> It involves the University of Kentucky, <laughs> and he, he he did earlier this season in a, a another video. It was a that, that he tweeted out where he he just mocked Calipari so so badly, and it was hilarious. And I thought it was great, but it, it, it created some controversy down there because you, you just don't. Louisville, Kentucky basketball is like Auburn, Alabama football. I mean, th those folks do not get along. And then for him to have celebrated Louisville's victory over Kentucky at a, at a maskless party was something that he indeed himself admitted was, quote, not a good look. Unquote. Yeah, not a good look. But I got, I, I got to say, and I'm glad you brought it up, other than the mask part, I love it. Right. Yeah, like oh, yeah. <laughs> other than the, the mask part and, and the discipline there and the, and you know, the message it sends um, about whether or not you're, you're taking things seriously. But in terms of the, 
ribbing Kentucky in terms of the going after Calipari. Oh, yeah. uh, maybe not a great move for Chris Mack, but boy, those of us who do this uh, sports writing deal for a living, we love that stuff. Oh, no, no question. And where I think Chris Mack gets in trouble with the maskless part is if that was one of his players, mm. there'd be hell to pay. Right. Think about Louisville already booted. Was it men's soccer uh, yes. players from the team for violence? So, yeah, it, it's just, you know, I, I guess that's our, our message to Chris Mack then is put on a mask, but otherwise keep it up. Because <laughs> yeah. other than that part, it, very entertaining. Well, we hope today's show was very entertaining. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was, of course, produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next week.